Welcome to The Original Doll. I am your host, James Rodriguez. On The Original Doll, I unpackage music with the people who create it. We go behind the scenes and learn about all these great stories behind so much iconography. And at the same time, we help out those in need. For more information, visit the website, www.theoriginaldoll.com. And a big shout out to my Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support. Because of you, this thing keeps going. And if you want to join that community, go to the website as well. Today, we're going to be talking about so many great songs. And this is going to be a two-parter. That's right. So be prepared because the second part will come out fairly quickly after this. But we're going to get right to this. I want to give a big shout out. And as with every episode of The Original Dial, any audio recording, ripping, stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you see anything leaked, please report it to the webmaster. We're going to get right to this. My name is James Rodriguez. This is The Original Dial Iconography. Everyone, I would like to welcome you back to the original doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez. On the original doll, I unpackage music with the people who create it. And at the same time, we give back to charity. So for every question a guest answers, we get items donated to women and children in domestic abuse shelters, homeless LGBT plus teens and more. For more information, go to www.theoriginaldoll.com. Everyone, I would like to introduce to you a songwriter who not only does pop, but has had success in R&B country and so many different genres. And for a long time, which is amazing. Everyone, I'd like to introduce Jason Bloom. Hello, everybody. It's so nice to be here. Hello. Thanks for joining us. This is going to be so much fun. You're somebody who, what's been great is to able to talk to somebody who is a songwriter, has made a career as a songwriter, but also has made a career helping out songwriters and being able to be not only kind of a, a peer, but also a teacher, a guide, and things like that, which is why I think this is awesome. So what I want to do is... I want to address that because it's really interesting. The very first time I ever attended any kind of a songwriting workshop would have been, I think, 1979, when I had just moved to Los Angeles. And of course, I was only four years old at that point, but um, (laughs) but, um, I went to a songwriting workshop, first time ever, And a woman walked onto the stage as the teacher and began talking. And I looked at her and I knew in my heart, that is what I'm meant to do. I was born to teach songwriting, not just to be a songwriter. And every success that I ever had, when when it was an artist who I knew would sell just mega millions, my thought was never about the money. It was always, wow, now I will have so much credibility to teach. I mean, that Mm. was just inside of me from the very first moment I even knew that there was such a thing as a songwriting teacher. This this is what I love. So let's let's rewind. How did music come into your life? What was your earliest memory of having that connection to music? Well, I was probably in the womb because I was I really grew up in a musical household. My father was a wonderful mandolin player. He was self-taught, but he could just pick up any instrument. It was mind-boggling. He could just pick up anything and seemingly know how to play it. And uh, I grew up with my father playing the mandolin virtually every single day of my life. Um I mean, I'm sure that as an infant, 
my father was playing the mandolin when I was, you know, in, in the bassinet or whatever. And then um, let's see, my sister is six months, six days, six years older than me. When she was 16 years old, I would have been nine. And she signed a major record deal with uh, Roulette Records in New York City. At the time, Roulette Records was just massive for mm. churning out teen pop idols. My sister did not become a teen pop idol. Uh, they released one single, and that was about it. And she really didn't want to do it. She felt like she it was a crazy life that she just was not suited for and she walked away with no regrets whatsoever but from the time I was nine years old I was watching rehearsals I was listening to every pop song on the radio that my sister was studying and and you know I was just at, even in a recording studio and it was so it was just such an important part of my life and this is going to sound wacko but also, I remember my mother and my sister and I lip syncing to hit records, you know, um, <laughs> turning on the stereo, standing there and working out dance moves and whatever. I was probably three or four years old. So I come by music uh, pretty naturally. In third grade, I started clarinet lessons with a guy who had been a sideman for Benny Goodman. And ironically, he didn't play clarinet and I was taking clarinet lessons, but with Benny Goodman, he had played trumpet, but he was a really good woodwinds teacher. So from third grade through the end of high school, I played all the woodwinds, uh, you know, not only clarinet, but I played baritone sax and tenor sax. And I'm going to tell you something. Um, First of all, I think it's very interesting that those were melody instruments, not corded instruments like the way mm -hmm. a piano or a guitar might be. So I think that melody was getting seared into my brain. I was always playing the melody instrument. And I think that that really affected me as a songwriter. But what's interesting is when I was about 12, I started playing my father's mandolin. And it was as if I just intuitively knew how to play. Now, of course, I'd been watching and listening to him from the day I was born. But somehow it had seeped in and I just knew how to play. And I was almost instantly better on mandolin than I was after eight or 10 years of woodwind lessons. It's like I had no affinity, no talent. For woodwinds i didn't know that until mm. i tried string instruments and then moved to guitar also and I, I should tell people i'm not a good guitarist i'm not even a mediocre guitarist compared to the average guitarist in nashville i'm horrible and there's good reason for that i never took the time to really practice or to learn mm. i had a, a handful of lessons and that's all and i just had too much going on. My passion was writing. I didn't care if I couldn't play great licks on guitar. What mattered to me was being able to write melody that people could sing, that people would remember. So I could play guitar and I can play well enough to, if I really rehearse hard, I can do a live show 
uh, when I'm teaching at a festival or a workshop or something, but I am never going to be a good guitarist. And, you know, for people who are songwriters, I like to tell them the ability to play an instrument is a completely different skill from the ability to write melody. Mm. And, you know, I know amazing guitarists and keyboard players who can just churn out licks that make my jaw drop, but it doesn't mean that they can write melody that a singer can sing. So then let me ask you this, because you were very in tune to music, picking up, listening constantly. Mm-hmm. What were what were those first couple of songs where it kind of hit you that somebody created a story when it went from just enjoying just the sonics mm-hmm. of it to the story side of it? When did your yeah. mind get open to that? Like, what were some of those early songs, even that the oh. lyrics you're like, this, this makes sense now? I can tell you there were a handful of albums that right now are giving me chills thinking about the effect they had. Number one would have been Cat Stevens. Um, his early albums, uh, not the early, early ones before he became well-known. I have those, but those are not the ones that I initially got or the ones that moved me. But I'm talking about T for the Tillerman. And uh, and the one before that, also Mona Bone Jacan. And then after that, uh, Teaser and the Fire Cat. And these songs, uh, there was a song on T for the Tillerman called Sad Lisa that just, I don't know when anything had ever affected me. The storytelling was so powerful, so unexpected. And I will never, as long as I live, forget being probably 16 years old, Growing up in Philadelphia, I went to the Philadelphia Academy of Music to see Cat Stevens in concert. And he came out, it was just him with, uh, I believe, a bass player and a, and a drummer. And when Sad Lisa was being played, I was positive. I was hearing that gorgeous violin solo that was integral to the record and I thought I'm imagining it because I've just you know heard it a million times and slowly the curtain rose behind him and there was the orchestra and the live violin player and I don't know that there could ever be another moment in my life where music would have affected me to that extent and it was life-changing and it was everything I wanted to be, everything I wanted to do. The other albums at that time that now I loved tons of other music. I, I listened to so much living in Philadelphia. We had uh, an arena back then called the spectrum and every big act played the spectrum in every genre. If I tell you some of the artists mm-hmm. I saw there, it's incredible. I got to see um, early on, The Who, I got to see um, Carol King, Ozzy Osbourne in Black Sabbath, Alice Cooper, yes, um, James Taylor. I got to see the very first Elton John tour. So my wow. exposure to incredible music was so wide. And I think that that probably affects why I write in so many different genres, but I can't talk about being affected by music without saying that the one I worship 
is Joni Mitchell. I mean, I think there will never be music that affects me the way mm-hmm. her albums did. I think I first uh, was exposed to Court and Spark, and that led me to go backwards to the early albums. And to this day, if I have a long drive, I promise you there will be Joni Mitchell albums and Cat Stevens albums in my, you know, car stereo. It is it is interesting that so many people I've talked to that are songwriters have mentioned the impact Cat Stevens, Joni Mitchell, like oh, yeah. continually. And I think that to me truly speaks to the talent and the longevity of both of those artists that they were able to create something. And so many people who are successful songwriters and creatives mention them as well. There's something that should be said. Do you know what I mean? That they were able to inspire a whole beyond generation. Cause I don't want to say generation because it's generations after is how so many of these artists have impacted them. So let me ask you this then, when did you realize, okay, I can take this kind of this passion, this love, and I could make it a job. At what point did it click to you that, okay, wait, this can help pay the bills? Because this was, <laughs> you were in at a great time to start making money versus streaming and oh, everything yeah. now. Oh, yeah. So when when did that first come to play? And what was that first contract thing? What was that yeah. like for you? Was it intimidating? Was it, you know what I mean? Oh, Talk a little to, to those because we've all heard yeah. stories of so many people at different times joining the industry, whether it's publishing this, that, how they were like that first one, I didn't know what I had to do, but the expectations were this. So can you talk Mm -hmm. to us about how that was? First of all, when you realized this can be a job where it can, you know, bring in money. And then how did that look after? Sure. Well, I started writing songs when I was 12 and it never crossed my mind that this, I mean, money just had nothing whatsoever to do with this. I was just writing because I needed to write. They were pouring out of me. And I would say by the time I was around 16, I was performing my own songs, just in little tiny venues and things. And at that point, the concept of writing songs to earn money because they were recorded by other people never crossed my mind. I felt I was a singer-songwriter, and hmm, maybe I could earn a living playing clubs. I mean, I wasn't thinking superstar. I was thinking coffee houses. I was thinking bars and and things like that. And that was the initial thought. But gradually, um, and I I also should add, I was a, a front man for a couple of rock bands that never got much farther than my garage. But again, the songs I was writing were for me to perform. I, I I wonder if I even grasped that other people sometimes wrote songs that they didn't sing that became successful for somebody else. But I guess I learned that gradually at some point. And, um, you know, I still wanted to be the superstar, the singer songwriter through my 20s. I was getting, I think I was, Uh, 23 when I took my first songwriting workshop, the one I already mentioned. But that same year, I got accepted into another workshop that was really serious. It was hardcore. And most of the people in that workshop were writing 
in the hopes of someone else recording mm. their songs. If I recall, somebody in the workshop got a song recorded by Bette Midler. And, um, oh, the, the people who came through these workshops went on to such incredible success. What comes to mind is uh, there was one class where I sat next to um, Alan Rich, who is, you know, became so successful the guests the guests here know him from we had an interview with him and we deep dived into run to you yeah so if you can imagine this i'm sitting next to alan rich in a workshop neither of us has really had any success at that point and he brings in the song i don't have the heart and i'm like oh my god james ingram but I bring in Change My Mind. And both of these songs, of course, went on to become tremendously life-changing for both of us. But you just don't know. So anyway, back to your question. At that workshop, I think I really grasped, hmm, there's this whole business out there of writing songs for other people. And that worked well for me because a lot of what I was writing was not who I was as an artist. And I will say that who I was as an artist kept evolving. There was a point when I wanted to be Prince. I'm serious. I mean, really funky, soulful stuff uh, with the black backup singers and the whole deal. I wanted to be George Michael. I wanted to be, of course, Cat Stevens and James Taylor. And it was like, I think part of the problem for me was I didn't have one solid identity of who I was as an artist. So I was writing a lot of songs that were not really going to be appropriate for me. And um, that was when I really got the idea, hmm, I think I need and want a publisher. And from the time that that hit my mind, my gosh, I think it was 11 and a half years before I signed an exclusive publishing deal. I think it took seven years before I signed my first single song contract with a publisher. And I will tell you, it's a song that I'm gonna guess very few of your listeners are gonna know about. It's a song called, I Had a Heart. Now I was living in Los Angeles and I wound up through a temp agency working at RCA Records in the country music promotion department. Now, at the time, I thought that this was like a punishment for something I had done in a former life. To me, I thought country music was an oxymoron. Country and music? No, it was garbage. A bunch of whiny, three-chord, no talents, singing about drinking and cheating and whatever and I just I'd I'd never listened to it of course Mm -hmm. and now I was going to be stuck in you know immersed in it eight nine hours a day and my very first day on that job my job was to stuff this is how old I'm going back early 80s my job was to stuff the vinyl single of the debut recording by an unknown artist named The Judds. 
and I put it between two pieces of cardboard, typed up the label, and I my job was to mail these to the radio stations. Now, that meant we were listening in my office to the Judd's upcoming first album. We were listening to it almost constantly the entire day because my bosses were uh, in charge of, of at least, if not making the final decision, making the recommendations about what the singles would be off the album. And I'm listening and I'm suddenly thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> this is not what I thought country music was. These are some of the most freaking unbelievable vocals I have ever heard from, you know, Winona. I'm thinking this is right mm -hmm. up there with she this is like the illegitimate child of Linda Ronstadt and Bonnie Raitt. And, and I love it. And the harmonies, but the songs that was just incredible to me. Every song on that album, and of course, they were all from outside songwriters. Mm -hmm. Every song was like a masterpiece of storytelling and detail and imagery and melodies that were seared in the brain. And I thought, that is what I want to do. I want to write these kinds of songs. I had never written a country song. As I said, I lived in Los Angeles, never listened to country mm -hmm. music. And I decided to write a song for the Judds. And I got this great idea for a country song because back in the 80s, there were all these clever, cutesy twists on words. Um, you know, I'm sleeping single in a double bed. You really had me going, now I'm gone. And, you know, I thank God and Greyhound, you're gone. And, you know, all these funny kind of ideas and my favorite, take your tongue out of my mouth because I'm kissing you goodbye. Anyway, I made that one up. But, but um, I That's really amazing. did write a song <laughs> that was called If I'd Only Met You Sooner, I'd Be Over You By Now. And it was a really good song. It never got recorded. But anyway. Wait, who I, were you thinking of that for? Was it just anybody or was there somebody in kind of particular? That was at a That's point a great title, time. by the way where that was really almost the mainstream of country radio. It could have been any of the male. I mean, it really could have been female as well, but we did a male demo on it and it could have gone for a lot of different artists. It just didn't. And I, and I may have to start pitching that song. I, although I do think uh, that that train has left the station. Clever cutesy is not something I hear a lot anymore on country radio. So I came up with this idea. I had a heart. Now, where I had a heart, there's just a heartache. And I thought, now that is a country song. And by the way, if people are thinking, gosh, how listen to this guy talk. He, he's not from the South. It's like, well, I am. I'm from South Philly. But I still felt like, you know, I could write country songs. Mm-hmm. And I wrote, I had a heart and I brought it to a publisher. And a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, how in the world did you get a meeting with a publisher? Remember, I was working at RCA Records and that was not a coincidence. When I decided I was tired of living in one room with mice and roaches and 
eating cat food because I had no money. Mm -hmm. When I decided I had had enough of that, I went to a temp agency and I researched what are the temp agencies that provide temps to the entertainment industry. If I'm going to have to work some miserable day job, at least let it be something where I can learn and make connections. And I didn't get sent to RCA instantly. I went to tons of temp jobs that had really nothing creative involved. You know, maybe it was a television station where I was filing, you know, eight hours a day in, in a room with files mm -hmm. up to the ceiling. And there were probably a half a dozen of those or more along the way. And uh, I will add that at one of those along the way, I worked in publicity for a lot of big name artists. And, you know, back then, the fifth dimension and, uh, you know, up, up and away and Engelbert Humperdinck. And uh, anyway, the fifth dimension, because of my job, wound up recording one of my songs. And that was really uh, one of the first songs I ever had recorded. So my idea of getting my foot in the door through a temp agency worked out quite well. So back to RCA, I wrote the song, I Had a Heart, and I brought it to a publisher who was willing to meet with me because I worked at RCA. And he thought mm -hmm. maybe there would be an in to pitch songs, not realizing I was the lowest level. I wasn't even on the first rung of the ladder. I was, you know, looking up at the first rung. <laughs> but I met with the publisher and he said to me, there's only four things wrong with this song. I thought, well, that's not that bad for my first country song ever. He said, you know what's wrong? The words, the music, the verses and the chorus. Otherwise, you got a great song. And when I picked my jaw up off the ground, he explained, you've got a great idea. You've got a great mm. hook, mm -hmm. but you have not made it pay off melodically or lyrically. So I rewrote the song and I rewrote the song. And each time I brought it to him, it mm -hmm. was like, well, it's getting a little closer, but. And after the fourth rewrite, he said, have you ever considered collaborating with somebody? Maybe you'd get there if somebody else had some input. The only person I knew who I thought might write country songs in Los Angeles was Brian Cumming. And Brian was from Georgia, so I figured he must know how to write country music. <laughs> in reality, Brian uh, was not really a country guy. He was so talented in so many genres but had not really written a lot of country music, but we did great together. And it only took three more rewrites. Uh, so a total of seven versions and seven demos before the publisher said, I think this works. I think you really finally nailed it. I'm going to FedEx it to my Nashville office. And that was a Monday. And Tuesday, he called me to congratulate me on having a single. And I was just stunned. 
he had been playing. He played it when it arrived, took it out of the package, stuck it in the uh, cassette player. Because I'm and and for those who are of a certain age, let me explain. <laughs> a cassette was once upon a time. You know, I have taught at NSAI Song Camp where I am not lying. People have raised their hand and said, "What's a cassette?" So anyway, um, he he was playing the cassette that had arrived in the mail. And there was a producer in the next office who heard it and walked over and said, this is the song I need to cut. We're cutting today. I got to cut this song. Now, I didn't understand at that point in time that um, on the country music charts, you've heard of a glass ceiling. There was a steel ceiling for independent artists. It was virtually impossible to get above around number 60 or so on the billboard charts with an independent release. You simply had to have the clout that came with a major label. And there was mm -hmm. a working in country promotion where I stayed for years, um, really taught me what goes into getting a song on the radio and on the charts and whatever. So I didn't understand there was no chance of my song being a big hit with an independent artist, but it changed my life. It did get some airplay. It went up to number 63 on the Billboard charts. It was performed on the Grand Ole Opry. It was performed on other TV shows. This is the first country song I'd ever written. Mm -hmm. And with the reason it led to every single thing in my life is the producer who cut this song, Don Goodman, Don was such an incredible writer. He, uh, he's had at least six number one singles. He wrote uh, what I think is really a classic, which is Old Red. Uh, the most recent massive hit with it was Blake Shelton. But mm -hmm. before that, it was George Jones and other people recorded it. This is a classic. He had written Ring on Your Finger, Ring on Her Finger, Time on Her Hands, uh, that had been recorded by multiple artists, including Reba McIntyre. He had he had written, um, uh, I think it was called Dixie Road for Alabama. That was a huge number one. He was like the top of the game. I had written one country song in my life and he wanted to write with me. And Amazing. I was so panic stricken. I spent two weeks before flying, before maxing out my credit cards to, to fly to Nashville for my first time. And I spent two weeks collecting what I call song starts, ideas, titles, mm -hmm. melody snippets, maybe whole lyrics. And uh, I brought them with me so that if I were having a panic attack and a migraine, I'd you still something. have something to contribute. So, uh, Don never showed up for my writing session. The entire reason I went to Nashville was to write with Don Goodman, oh, who no. blew me off. Mm -hmm. And his publisher felt awful about it. And she said, let me see if I can't find somebody else for you to write with. So she went down the hall and came back and said, Jason, this year's AJ Masters. AJ, this here's Jason. Y'all go ride a hit now. And first time <laughs> I ever was exposed to this concept of 
in Nashville, you just go into a room with a stranger and you write a song and a couple hours later, you're done. And I mean, it was amazing. So AJ was brilliant. He was an independent artist who'd had a lot of success as much as you could have as an mm -hmm. independent artist at that time. Great writer, great singer. And I brought this lyric that was really 90% finished. It, it was it was everything but a bridge, but it had no melody. And in 45 minutes, AJ and I wrote the melody and AJ wrote the bridge that slayed me. It's probably my favorite thing in the song. Mm -hmm. And this was so much better than anything I had ever written. It was just mind boggling. So I'm his publisher with AJ demoed the song. And when I got the demo, I just couldn't believe my ears. I thought, I'm listening to a record. It's perfection. I mean, this is the record. And I had no concept that, that, that all that was, was the industry standard in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And not only in Nashville, but everywhere. Demos sounded like finished recordings most of the time. You know, maybe if you were pitching a tender ballad, you could do a guitar vocal with with a phenomenal vocalist and, and a mm -hmm. perfect guitar track. But for anything that had a groove or whatever, it needed to kick like a, you know, mm -hmm. like a record. And this did. Wow. So I was absolutely certain this song that I had written for the Judds, I don't think I even pitched it because, like I said, it got recorded the first day. Hopping out for a quick second, don't forget, while you're on here, make sure that you rate the show. That truly helps keep this going. And if you want to join my community, go to theoriginaldoll.com. You'll see a pop-up for the Original Doll Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. We're going to get right back to this. For Change My Mind, the Oak Ridge Boys, Keith, from, Nash Boys. Keith from Nashville said, James, I loved your interview with Sharon Vaughn and love learning about the Oak Ridge Boys. Can you please ask Jason about the creation of Change My Mind. It's a phenomenal song that deserves even more shine. Can you ask Jason about how it would be differently if he wrote the same kind of song for a pop artist? Sharon wow. Vaughn said, country is always about the lyrics and pop can be more about the background music. Do you agree with that? Because she basically said, you need really great lyrics to make a great country song. She goes, but there are times where you could just have great music in a pop song but you can't just have oh that sounds pretty for country mm -hmm. you need to tell a story do you agree with sharon vaughn's take on that i do absolutely but i have to tell you i recorded a pop version of change my mind when it was a hit and and it just killed me that that song never got recorded as a pop song because that recording that pop version i think rivals or beats the country hit but i should explain you know the oak ridge boys recorded the song three and a half years after it was written by that time virtually every artist in nashville had heard and passed on the song and it finally got recorded by the oak ridge boys and i don't mean to offend those who are fans, because I am more grateful for that recording than words could ever say. 
it that recording got me a staff writing deal that led to, you know, I stayed for 12 years until the company went out of business, uh, was sold for $3 billion. And Zamba. Uh, yeah. So if it were not for the Oak Ridge Boys, changed my mind. There would have been no Britney. There would have been no John Berry or Backstreet Boys or anything else that really, you know, were such a gift to me. But I hated the Oak Ridge Boys version. I hated it so much that when actually when I first heard it, believe it or not, I thought it was a practical joke. To my no. ear, some of the harmonies were so out of tune and there was a section in the chorus that um, the melody was with a look, with a touch, touch. And the Oak Ridge Boys with completely out of tune harmonies sang with a touch. And I was just like, oh my God, what did they do to it? But it changed my life and I'm so grateful for it. And I will tell listeners that many times I've hated songs, recordings of my songs. Other times I go, oh my God, they did everything I could have dreamed of and more. But more often I have not loved those recordings. And it took five and a half more years and 75 rejections minimum before Change My Mind then was recorded by John Berry. And, and we have a question about we have a question about that. That okay, one. please. Nancy from Ottawa, Canada. James, I love what you do. I learned so much about music that I love. I did not know John Barry's song "Change My Mind" was a cover. Can you ask Jason how does he feel when more than one person sings the song and they get released? Thank you, James. So this kind of ties right into that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the only time I've had a cover version. Oh, yeah, I know. Ecstatic. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) come record my songs. My gosh. I mean, that is just like the ultimate compliment and and success when more than one people, uh, more than one artist records the song. I'm going to tell you a very interesting story about the John Berry recording of it which I will add, I love. God, what a voice that man has. Um, Anyway, I had been at Zamba, the publishing company I was signed to, for uh, five years. And I had not had the big breakthrough hit. The Oak Ridge Boys version of Change My Mind did not do well. That's the understatement of the year. It was horrible disappointment because it was like the emperor's new clothes everybody kept Mm. telling me it's going to follow a number one it's going to be a number one and i kept saying but it's horrible and everybody kept saying no no it's the oakridge boys it's it's going to be number one it peaked at number 73 on the billboard charts i think probably the lowest charting single in the career of the oakridge boys Mm. and i was devastated but it got me my staff writing deal. So five years into that deal, my publisher called me into his office and he said, listen, you're really good. I like you, but you're not making money for this company. You're not making money for you. And I think it's time to say goodbye. And panicked. 
because I thought, who would ever sign me again after five mm -hmm. years with a big publisher and no hits? Nobody will sign me. I'm desperate. And I mean, there was almost no conscious thought. Out of my lips came, all I'm asking for is six more months. Just give me six months. Pay me $5,000 for the six months as an advance. That's all I'm asking for and paid for my demos. And if I have not had hits in the next six months, we will shake hands and say goodbye and I will say thank you. And he said, yes. And I left that office and I hired an independent song plugger. Now, I just have to say for people who wanna run out and buy, get a song plugger, I don't <laughs> recommend it unless you've already had an element of success. Mm -hmm. um, there has never been, to the best of my knowledge, a situation where somebody hired a song plugger and got their very first big recording. It just doesn't happen. Song and for pluggers, the listeners who don't know that that terminology, song plugger, can you explain to those who might not know what that means? Sure. And it reminds me, I should tell people that, it, that this is explained in an article that I've written for, I write for two BMI magazines. There are 130 free articles on my website, jasonbloom.com. You just click on articles. And I've had people say to me that reading those articles was the equivalent of a four-year college education in songwriting. We're talking about 130 lessons and interviews. So I address this in one of those articles. But for now, I will tell you that um, I'm sorry, it was a uh, staff writer you wanted me to explain or what? Song plugger. Song plugger. Okay. A staff writer, while I'm at it, is just somebody signed exclusively mm -hmm. to a publishing contract. A song plugger is when you hire somebody, you pay them. They're not your publisher. They don't own a piece of the song. You're simply paying them usually a monthly um, retainer, and then some bonuses, a percentage in the event that they are responsible for getting your song recorded. Uh, you work out the details. And um, I don't mean to, to, to try and do a plug, but I have the actual contracts in my book, This Business of Songwriting. So um, if anybody's curious about well, wh what do you offer? How's it work? The whole contract is in the book. And it's explained a paragraph at a time. So anyway, I hired a song plugger. And it was somebody who was a secret songwriter. I didn't have any idea that she that this woman was quietly writing songs. If I had known that, I would not have hired her. Because my fear would have been she's going to push her own songs ahead of mine. So I would mm -hmm. never have hired her. And she went ahead and got my song to an A&R person at Capitol Records. And that's how the John Berry recording happened. But it was five and a half years after the Oak Ridge Boys, or five years, and so many rejections. And that's how that happened. Now, I should mention that my song plugger, who was a secret songwriter at that time, was writing with a 14-year-old. Um, her name was Taylor Swift. 
my song plugger was Liz Rose, Rose, who went on to write some of the biggest Taylor Swift number ones. I adore Liz, and she's a brilliant writer and business person. And I had no idea that she was a songwriter, but she is the reason that I'm on this podcast today. If I had not gotten that recording in the six-month window, when I had promised my publisher, if I don't get a hit record, I'm out of here. I would be out of here. But wait, do you hear this? At the end of that six months, things were in place for me to have not only changed my mind, go top 10 on the radio. I had another song called I'll Never Stop Loving You recorded by a 12-year-old kid named Jason. It was J apostrophe S-O-N. So unless they saw the video, yes, yes. So unless they saw the video, a lot of people thought that was me. But it was a 12-year-old little black kid who sang the crap out of that song and talk about covers. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, and and we're going to get right to it. I won't go there yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's, but yeah. into this, not only did I have changed my mind, and then I had I'll Never Stop Loving You, which wound up on the R&B charts, but also the pop charts. Not a huge hit, but a number one video. And then at the same time, I had a song called I Never Stopped Loving You. Not to be confused with, I'll never stop loving you. Just one of life's weird coincidence that wound up being a chart single on the country charts for Steve Azar. So when I begged for six more months, I never imagined what could happen in that amount of time. Did you know that you can send me your letters of love to a future guest? That's right. Just go to theoriginaldoll.com, scroll down to the comment section at the bottom, put your name, your email address, and the song you want to send love to, and why it's your song that you love. And let me know, the producer, songwriters, everyone involved, and also where you're messaging us from. And who knows, you may see it on a future episode. For more information, go to theoriginaldoll.com. Don't forget to add me on Instagram, the.original.doll. For the listeners that know, all of you have sent in so many great questions, and so we're going to hop to it. And we're trying to – the problem is Jason and I could just keep going for hours and hours and hours, That's which the problem. is great. Jason can't I was, shut up. <laughs> so what we're going to do, we're going to hop to I'll Never Stop Loving You. And so for those who wanted to know what Jason responded to, I held up the CD single for I'll Never Stop Loving You. We have a question from Paco from Spain, original child James. You talked about Jason, the singer, apostrophe. Mm-hmm. And I've been looking all over the internet for information on Jason's debut album. And with this song, can you ask Jason, you, (laughs) how he started working with Jason? Then the second one, we have a question from Shal in Russia. He said, James, you mentioned the remix of I'll Never Stop Loving You. There was the R&B version on the single. As a writer, how does it help to have your song done in a different genre and that's something that's really great because you can talk about this so the first one is how did you get involved in jason's project did you work on other songs and for those who don't know this single it actually has an r&b mix as the second track on there so talk a little bit about how you got involved in this 
And well, this is still 1996, 1995 ish. Yes. And the answer is easy. I co-wrote with Steve Diamond and Steve wound up producing Jason. We didn't write the song for Jason. We just wrote the song and we felt like it came out great. And then when Steve had the opportunity to write, uh, not just to write, but to produce the album or to produce some of the cuts on the album by Jason, it was just, there we go, slipped it right in. And, you know, I'd love to tell people a better story, but the truth of the matter is in this business, a lot of times cuts happen because you write with the producer or you write with the artist. And that's what happened in that instance. And um, I'm dying to tell you about the cover of that oh, song. Yep, yep. And but we'll get... I won't go there until, we, <laughs> until I answer your other question. Yep. So well, uh, tell me again your other question. So the other question was Shul from Russia. He was mm -hmm. basically asking, how does making an R&B version of the mm -hmm. song help an artist or a debut artist or their debut single mm -hmm. in your mind as a songwriter and now that we know you kind of had the marketing background you have that business knowledge how would a new artist benefit from not only having let's say the pop version of it let's say mm -hmm. and an r&b version how does that help well you know essentially when you do that you've got two different records um, feels weird calling them records in this day and age, but you've got two different recordings that can each independently achieve success in different worlds. I mean, the R&B recording of uh, there were several R&B remixes on that record, and they wound up on radio stations that strictly played hardcore R&B. They, those recordings don't sound very much at all like the pop recording. And by the way, I had nothing whatsoever to do with them. The record label hires, in this instance, hired the remixer, and I didn't even hear it until it was released. Uh, the truth is- Did you I get a heads up though? Did you get a heads up knowing that they were gonna do kind of the remixes of it? Or is I that did. just- I did, I was told happy. it would happen. But at the point I was told it was probably you know, already in, in the works. So it is a tremendous benefit because in a sense, it's like I have two completely different recordings now being promoted. I have one at pop radio. I have one at R&B radio. I, uh, you know, it was, and of course it, it's double the income if it's successful in both places. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that was almost the dream. It was fantastic. I, I will add for people who don't know that same song, the pop version was used in a Disney movie called first kid. Yes. And I did not know as typically you don't how it would be used. I was thrilled and I knew it was going to be in the movie first kid. And I'm watching and I'm watching in a movie theater waiting to see where's my song. You know, did I miss it? Is it going to be like five seconds in the background? And then Suddenly, the star of the movie is at a roller skating rink, and my song comes on, and he's roller skating with his little girlfriend, and he says to her, or she says to him, I love this song, and the answer is, me too, and they are romantically dancing for a long, long time on skates to my song. It was so fun. It was, that was really exciting.
The, sometimes the uses really are 12 seconds in the background, but this was not one of them. We, we actually heard about like a sync story with um, Shelly Pikin, where she said mm -hmm. she did, you know, what a girl wants. And she's like, I went to the movie theater waiting for it and they never used it. She's oh. like, I still, I still get, she goes, I still got paid. And they changed wow. the title of the movie to that, but they never actually used the, the song in there. So That's now crazy. what I want to do is hop to this cover that was on Britney wow. Spears' Baby One More Time. Now we have a question from Daniel in France. James Rodriguez, sir, you talked to Mr. Steve Lunt about Britney Spears remaking songs during her development and first albums. Can you please ask Jason B, can you find out when Britney sang the song, was he there, was he in the studio? How did it feel when he heard a girl singing a song versus a boy singing the song? Because that's something that's different because a lot of times mm -hmm. you have a male artist covering another male artist. Not every time, mm -hmm. but in this situation. And you have like triple luck with this because this was recorded during the developmental, the early Britney's right. Beers. So let's rewind. Now we know that there's the Zamba connection because right. you were a staff writer. So talk about how you learned it was going to be used, all any information because the listeners are going to love this. Okay. Uh just just to clarify, when James said the Zamba connection, Zamba was the publishing company I was signed to, and Zamba owned Jive Records, who had signed Britney Spears. So I totally had a connection. I had already met with Brittany and Steve Lunt before anything was recorded. So um, I got an email from Steve saying to me, we're thinking about having Brittany record this song, um, I'll Never Stop Loving You. It had not been a big hit in the U.S. internationally. It had gone to number one, recorded by Jason in New Zealand. It was number two in Australia. But in the U.S., not that not that many people knew the song. Um, so they were open to having her cover it. They said, but we're, we'd love to hear how she sounds on it. Can you send us a track with no vocals so that she can try it? try it out in the studio and see how she sounds. I said, well, of course I can, but it's a male key. She won't, how is she going to be able to sing that low? But I went and I took the track and I put it in a, a computer program. I think it was probably Pro Tools at that time. And when I say I did it, no, I hired an engineer. I'm not mm -hmm. really that good at this kind of stuff. The engineer took the, uh, background track recording raised it a half step, a whole step, and a step and a half, which would put it into a key that typically would work for a female. I sent them all of those, and they got back to me and said, yes, you know, this. she sounds really good on it, but it wound up being what they call a bonus cut on the album, meaning in the U.S. back then, we were typically releasing maybe 11 songs or so, mm -hmm. give or take, on, on an album. But on international releases, there could be 15, even 16 songs. So my bonus cut wound up not being on the U.S. version, but being everywhere else mm -hmm. around the world. 
Asia, you know, every place. Else. I have about 20 different versions from every country I've gone to of baby wow. and all the different albums. And the, the listeners of this are too. So they'll message me and they'll say, James, that's not the standard pink version of it. So we know that that one has, I'll never stop loving you as track this, this, this. And I'm like, then wow. that the listeners are collectors of music, supporters Amazing. of music, supporters, of songwriters. And then they also know that it was the B side to one of Britney Spears's singles Right. And it was also, this is just, I mean, she was such a phenomenon at the time. They wound up releasing it as a special single that could only be purchased at Target. So, like you said, there were so many versions and I was so happy. Um, I stopped counting, but somewhere along the way, I know it surpassed 17 million sales. And, you know, forget about, forgetting about the money for a moment, and I won't lie, that's life-changing money. But what mattered to me was uh, a couple of things. One is that um, I would have credibility as a teacher, which is what I wanted to do. Like, wow, with all of these sales, I'm going to be really well-known as a teacher. But the other thing is the truly almost incomprehensible idea that 17 million people are listening to my song, plus their friends and their families. It's just, it's it's so rewarding. There's, it's incredible. And to give it some shine is just last year, I'll Never Stop Loving You, Britney Spears' song, went to number four on iTunes on the pop charts in Greece and number 28 in 2019 on the pop iTunes charts in the Ukraine. So I go through all international things. I have listeners. We do campaigns and everything. So with I'll Never Stop Loving You, Steve Lunt was talking specifically because so many people said, oh, the record label, they really wanted this baby voice. And Britney Spears has a normally low voice and everything. And Steve was like, she doesn't have, like when you listen to her notes and everything, he's like, she tonality is different than pitch. So like when you said, here's a mm. song, like if her voice was lower naturally, she could have mm. easily, if this is what people think, she could have easily done the Jason version and called it a day. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. you have to raise it up there. She has the tone that sounds different than what it's actually doing. I always take like with Pink and other artists where Pink's voice sounds deeper, thicker, but then she hits those notes that you're just like, this is mm-hmm. insane. So, but with- I want your listeners to know, since we're talking about tone and things, I think that's what makes a unique artist uh, as opposed to a singer is that instantly identifiable tone. And I worked with Britney in the studio. So I know she had just those natural, those those uh, licks and things that she's so well known for, and that tone and that breathy kind of a thing. That's just the real deal. That's what comes out of her. And I think it is what makes an iconic artist. A hundred percent. And have no fear because we have part two coming up and we have Steve Lunt talking about the creation of the song. Why did this song get chosen as something to be recorded by Britney Spears? And we have another songwriter who worked on a Jason song that is going to be in there as kind of the hidden track. So make sure that you click follow on here so that you get notified right away. My name is James Rodriguez. This is the original doll iconography. Hello. 